Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. I read Marcia completely wrong. She was, she was absolutely playing us all. I can't believe I missed it. That's Marty Biafora. His name came up in one of our interviews as someone who had information about Marcia. He owned the bar before she bought it from him. They were also both pot dealers in Morgantown in the 80s. So, as we often do for this show, we cold-called him. That's when he told us something we hadn't heard. Oh, I know exactly where she is and what happened to her. Of course, she snitched on everybody. Marco, Phil, the boys in Jersey, the Ash Connection, the whole story. She rolled the Marsha, snitching. She was selling pot, sure. But as far as I knew, it wasn't that much. What could she possibly have been doing that would turn her into a police informant? It's just not who she was. It's just, it's a, it merits a lot of shit. And it's still so hard for me to think that she well, could be a snitch. Somehow it just feels Yeah, cold. I know. And I, I know. Uh, you know, it's, it's family. like... family. Yeah. yeah. Well, but you know what? You, you can you can stick your head in the sand if you want, but something's going to bite you on the ass. Mm-hmm. The facts are the facts. Reality's reality. And, and you know what? If you eliminate what can't be, what's left is what is. We've talked to a lot of people who love Marsha and have built up an idealized image of her since she disappeared. The righteous outlaw the champion of progressive causes, the community builder par excellence. And it's all true. Marsha was all of those things. But she was also flawed. And that's what you're going to hear in this episode. What we've learned and what we're still trying to process. They say you should never meet your heroes. Because up close, their cracks really start to show. I'm Jamie Zellermeyer. And I'm Karen Zellermeyer. This is I Was Never There, Episode 5. I hear a voice in the morning as she calls me. Radio reminds me of my home far away. Driving down the road, I get a feeling like I should have been home yesterday. The more people we talked to for this project, the more I started to realize Marsha's side gig selling pot was more than just a side gig. 
Marsha loved to push any and all boundaries, and I've now learned that this was especially true when it came to her drug business. By 1983, I had moved away from Morgantown. My kids and I were living on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. I knew Marsha was regularly driving back and forth between Morgantown and New York to buy pot. She would stay with us when she was on these runs. She'd sleep on our couch. We'd take long walks through the East Village at night and eat Indian food on our block. I loved those visits with her. But then, Jamie and I spoke with our mutual friend, Joni Freedom. She used to come up once a month, and then one day she said to me, you know what, I want to give you some money and be a roommate here. So she gave me $50 a month towards the rent and had a bed. She was a roommate with us, and a lot of crazy things happened that came through my place, because at that point it was more like a crash pad. A lot of people from West Virginia came up, and we had parties, and, and it was fun. Joni is one of the matriarchs of the Rainbow family. She spent many years in West Virginia and eventually moved up to New York and got a loft on the Lower East Side. Joni was one of my anchors when we first moved there, but I hadn't talked to her in years. I was pretty surprised when she told us my place wasn't Marsha's only home base in the city. As it turns out, Marsha was having a much wilder time at Joni's than she ever had with us. It was like in 83, 84, 85 that the little cocaine started coming up. There were other friends of ours from West Virginia that would come up and would be doing coke. They were, they were also freebasing and, you know, there was all this stuff going on that was happening out around, around here. Not in my house exactly, but, you know, in the places that we would hang out and get together. They rent hotel rooms and, and, you know, doing all this stuff. Of course she partied. It was Marcia. But her trips to New York were primarily for her pot business. Here's what Joni told us about Marsha's final trip. Yeah, it was, it was 25 pounds and 32,000 or something. I was never party to this. She never brought it in my house. I was never there when the transaction took I place. I was never there. But the, <laughs> but the thing was, she was always fronted this. So she didn't pay cash for it. So what she did was... Uh, she went, she picked it up. It was packed up well in the trunk of her car. She would come back over here. We'd hang out, go out. We would go to Katz's for lunch. She would get everything up for that, put it in the car, and then she would come back and, and drive down. I would never know what she got or what the deal was or anything. I only know it because the person she got it from told me how much she had. The person Joni's talking about is Rita, Marsha's New York connection from episode two. And that $32,000 was a familiar number. It's similar to what we heard from Jack as well about Rita and the money in the safe. And according to the police notes, it more or less matches the amount of one of Marsha's last deals. It was surprising to hear these stories from Joni, but it also felt good to remember Marsha, especially with someone who loved her as much as I did. My God, she has such a place in my heart and I really miss her. Around the same time we talked to Joni, we got in touch with someone else, Michelle Malott. She turned out to hold a big piece to this puzzle. This is a different Michelle than the one who worked at the bar. My parents and this Michelle co-parented my sister and me and her daughter for several years. 
Our conversation brought up a lot of memories for her. Memories she hadn't talked about in almost 40 years. One of the things about Marcia was so liberating was the whole, let's be adventurous. If it doesn't hurt anybody, and hopefully that includes us, let's give it a try. What did she used to say? There's lots of fences out there. They've been building fences to keep people in or out for a long time. Well, we make our own fences. And you're really tall, Michelle. You can jump. (laughs) Michelle and Marsha really did have an adventurous relationship. They were friends, troublemakers of all kinds, and they sold pot together. I've thought so often about all the different things that Marsha and I did going up to up to the city, up to New York and listening to Van Morrison and so many and different things and how important it was to talk to you all because I, it was too mm, easy maybe or erroneous for sure to sum up our relationship as two dealers. But what Michelle and Marsha were doing, we found out, was hugely risky. Very dangerous stuff. We were in South America, Marsha and I. We were in Florida. We were we were in trouble. Were you in and, Nicaragua? Yes. We had heard about a Nicaragua connection from other people we interviewed, but we didn't know many of the details. Michelle did, and it's something she hadn't told anyone. Basically, Michelle and Marsha were international drug smugglers, moving a lot of cannabis from South America to the U.S. We would go in, fly in, drive through the country in a circuitous way, partially blindfolded at some points so that we wouldn't know where we were, so that we couldn't tell people where we had gone. When they got to the middle of the country, they bought the product. And then they were driven back out to the coast. From there, they loaded up a yacht. And the walls between the inner wall and the outer wall were empty and were open. It was an airlock. That's where all the doobie was was secured. And that's how they would travel back to the U.S., by sea. There was one other gal, I don't know who, I can't remember who she was, someone that joined us as a as a gal to be on this cruise ship to be the la 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 we adorable babes on the cruise ship they were quite the duo marcia short and chunky with that wild mop of curly gray hair and michelle blonde blue-eyed and six foot two inches tall i gotta say picturing marcia as a babe on a on a yacht is <laughs> quite the image i could see she would just love that And she's absolutely, passionately. They would land in the U.S. at a port in Texas, Florida, or Louisiana. And from there, they'd drive north to West Virginia. I listen to myself now, and I go, holy crap. Uh I would have gotten so seasick. (laughs) seasick. You know, I probably would have, too, now, I would imagine. We had a blast until it was a blast. Michelle also told us about trips to El Salvador and Colombia. 
Columbia is when things changed for them. It went from fun and exciting, yacht babes and international travel, to dangerous and scary. We were out of safe port. A ship came up, started to follow us, and fired upon us with what I guess were, what we always figured were, um, small missiles of some sort that Wow. You can see why I've neglected to mention these stories. (laughs) Um, So we were hit by a missile or or, or something not, it didn't blow up the whole ship, but it knocked the stern out. The marijuana started floating across the thing. We're not really paying attention to that. We're wondering how in the world we're going to live through this. There's a ship falling a ways back. We know it's shooting at us. We get the small extra safety boat off the side of the thing before it's blown up. And we get out underneath the smoke and the debris flying into the ocean and we get away. To the best of our knowledge, all they came for was the marijuana. And we never went back to Columbia for business. I can get Michelle and Marsha's recklessness. I did a lot of reckless shit, too. But hearing this story made me realize just how lost Marsha was. What happened to her moral compass? The Contras... The right-wing rebels who were fighting to overthrow Nicaragua's socialist government were funding their efforts with drugs. And there Marcia was, buying drugs in Nicaragua that, intentionally or not, supported those efforts. It was all so counter to everything she believed in. And on top of that, Michelle confirmed something I've worried about since Marcia disappeared. Marcia and I went down to Florida specifically to collect a large amount of marijuana and cocaine, kilos of marijuana, a lot of, a lot of coke. I, think, I don't think we were really sure that we were going to go along with the cocaine when we got down there. That became a possibility. I can't remember how he referred to it as like dessert or a topping, a topping. We could top it off by bringing up some cocaine, some quality cocaine. The cocaine was where Michelle drew the line. After that, she was out. Our lives were threatened in Florida. Our lives were threatened in Pittsburgh. We were told under no uncertain terms, you either do it our way, it's the highway. I went to Europe. Marsha disappeared. We did not expect to hear any of this from Michelle. It kind of blew us both away. Holy, holy... (laughs) Who would have thunk, right? Oh, my God. Everyone likes talking about Marcia selling dime bags out of her knitting bag. It seems harmless, fun even. But what we heard from Michelle was just as much a part of Marcia's story. Just the part that's harder to talk about. Because maybe Marcia was in over her head. 
which could be a reason for her to snitch, as Marty Biafora claims. So on our next trip down to West Virginia, we decided to meet up with Marty in person and get the scoop. Why this? I'll tell why you now? in a second. Why this? Why now? Because you're standing here to talk to me, but you know the story. You saw it. Some of it. Some of it. Can we- Marty grew up in a privileged, well-connected, conservative family. They own a lot of Morgantown. When he was young, he realized that he was different and forged his own entrepreneurial path. He became a pot-dealing hippie. Today, Marty is in his 60s and living in Morgantown. He's still working in cannabis, but via more legal channels, and he owns a Jamaican restaurant. Marty and Marsha shared a love of Jamaica, the music, the people, the pot. Marsha vacationed there, and Marty even lived there for several years. But he first met Marsha at the Earth House. I would go up to the uh, Earth House because I was in the business. Mm-hmm. We were all in the business, and Marsha was part of the business. It was because of the Earth House being the only center at the time that was kind of like a, a, the center of the vortex that was drawing people in. And they would come and go, but and then some of them wouldn't stay or stay connected or they were loosely spinning with it. But that was kind of like the center at the time. When Marty was 18, he opened the bar that would become the Underground Railroad. Back then, it was called Mateo's. I was living upstairs. My family owned the building. It was a cockroach-infested shithole. And um, after a couple of years of living upstairs and running the bar and going seven days a week, I would go down to sleep and get up and start all over. Just, you know, drugs, alcohol, uh, burritos from across the street. After a couple of years, I just was a French fry. I couldn't do it anymore. I, I was done. I was toast. So I wanted out. And I said to Marsha, I said, you want it? He sold the bar to Marsha in 1982 for $20,000, though he says she only ever paid him $12,000. Despite Marsha's outstanding debt, when we talked to him on the phone, he actually had some nice memories of the underground. And if you look at the bar, you went there to, to hide from the outside world, to get relaxed and to have a good time. When you went into the place, you felt like dancing. It felt light. It felt open and, and fun. At the end, when you went into Marsha's place, it felt dark. Mm-hmm. That's why nothing really surprised me when it, she went away, when it all happened. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like kind of like the, 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 the climax of what was being built to. That climax is Marsha's disappearance. And the reason she needed to disappear, according to Marty, was because she was working with the cops. She was a snitch. Here's why Marty thinks that. He told us he was out on parole from a previous drug bust when the cops, who were working with his cousin, set up a sting. That landed Marty back in jail. While he was inside, the police or some other law enforcement officer tried some coercive methods to get him to snitch. And I said, look, let's be realistic. I'm not going to be in here forever. I'm 25 years old, 26 years old. I'll be getting out. I got to live with this. And one day the state police comes in with another investigator and they laid the stack down and they said, let's talk. And there was Marsha's testimony. 
Marty says they showed him this giant stack of legal documents in an interrogation room. So when I talked to you the first time, you said, I know what happened to her. Yeah. I know where she is. Uh, here, and I'll, I'll re-clarify that. Yeah. She's either in the witness protection program or hiding from both sides. Okay, because the feds absolutely had enough to put her away forever. He says she snitched on half a dozen people. Yeah, she was working a game, and I think maybe maybe it came down to where she wasn't going to get a, a break. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. Don't really care. So there's a lot of people we talk to who would say Marsha was not a snitch. Really? The little mice followed her right to the river. Marsha, 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 you fools. Marsha may have had good intentions in the beginning or may have been a benign evil force in the beginning, but she was dark in her heart. She was a liar and a manipulator from the very beginning. She's preaching socialism and she's practicing capitalism. All in the same breath. And what I'm trying, what I'm personally struggling with as we do this podcast, right, is how to live with the Marsha's dark and light. Because we all have dark and light. And Marsha did a lot of good for the, the movement. And she did a lot of good for our community. I mean, she was a force and she was a progressive and a developing force. And But once again, Marsha didn't do this out of some deep-rooted, heartfelt move to give. Marsha did all of this because it profited her. Needless to say, if Marsha showed up today, you might not be so happy. Well, she owes me $8,000 and she did snitch on me. Um, we did have some good times together, but the Marsha that would show up today is not the Marsha that we had good times with. See you tomorrow. You do. Yeah. See you tomorrow. <sighs> I need a drink after that. <laughs> drink. Oh my God. Holy cow. Obviously, we wanted to confirm these stories. The one detail we were able to verify is that Marty was arrested by the West Virginia State Police in May 1986 for delivery of marijuana. He was in jail in Fairmont County. But we also wanted to know if there was any evidence that these documents Marty describes actually exist, or if there is any record of Marsha being a snitch and going into witness protection. So, once again, we turn to Deputy Chief P.J. Scott. Are you able to totally rule out the witness protection theory? No. I'm coming at this through the lens of a 2020 detective and not a 1988 detective. She seemed mainly involved with marijuana. I mean, fairly significant quantities of marijuana, but those aren't the huge violent cases you typically see that wind up, you know, in large federal indictments. Could it have been she was involved in something else or seen something else or got involved with somebody else? I mean, it's a possibility. I mean, but I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't say it was likely. I just don't know what type of case that would be that would require, you know, 30 years of witness protection. 
was there files of Marsha from before? Like, were, were the police tracking her before her disappearance? Not that I know of. I mean, you saw the notes in there that they spoke to some detectives that worked drug cases and stuff. They said that I don't even think they were that familiar, but they knew she was associated with people involved with drugs. I don't even think there was an active case or anything on her, no. The bottom line is, Deputy Chief Scott can't rule out witness protection, and we can't either. And Marty wasn't the only person who suspected Marcia was somehow connected to the police. We actually spoke with another Marty, Marty Jefferson. She used to buy weed from Marcia back in the 80s. At the time, she heard from a different dealer that Marcia had inside information about a big Morgantown drug bust that was about to go down. From what I heard is, is that Marcia called and let some people know that the bus was coming. She didn't call me, though. But... How would she have known? Well, mm-hmm. you, you got friends in high places. I know I used to have so friends in high places. But like I said, if she knew that bus was coming down and she had inside information, mm-hmm. you know, from the police or feds or whoever, you know, she may very well be in witness protection. There was a big drug bust in Morgantown. It happened after Marcia disappeared in 1989. Though, again, Deputy Chief Scott was skeptical Marcia was connected to that case. I knew people that worked on that case. If Marcia was involved in that, I would have known. My dad worked on that case. I don't think anybody out of that at least that, the ring that was rounded up here, anybody got any serious multi-year senses or anything like that. It was kind of just low-level, big yeah, roundup at once. Not anything where you're targeting like a major traffic or anything like that. Another lead we just can't verify. We tried to uncover any sort of documents that might connect Marsha to the police through the Freedom of Information Act. But so far we've come up short. Deputy Chief Scott also couldn't find any connections. So we ran the snitch theory past his dad, Major Phil Scott. Well, I, I, you know, I don't think anything's beyond the realm of possibility. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, you've had people tell you that, um, may have inside knowledge or something. I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not aware of anything uh, of that, but... As I say, I, you know, if you start ruling out stuff, you will never solve anything. <laughs> you yes. just got to kind of keep an open mind and say, okay, that could have happened. An open mind. That puts us back at square one. We hear theories, try to confirm or dismiss them. And then, once we start to believe a theory, we hear something that pushes us in another direction. It doesn't feel like we're getting closer to the answer. Without evidence, it's hard to say whether Marsha really was a snitch, if she went into hiding, or if she's been in witness protection all these years. If I saw Marsha today, first I would hug her. Then I would say, where have you been and what the hell did you do? If Marty Biafora saw her, he would say, you're a fucking snitch. I'm still processing all of this, but Marty has made up his mind. Marty said that our friend Marco, who helped Marcia start the mud farm, was supposedly one of the people Marcia snitched on. 
Since there's so much we can't prove, I wanted to float that idea by him. She do a lot of fucking things, but she's not a snitch. Well, good. I'm glad you're kind of verifying what my gut instinct is, too. I mean, you know, that was... He's like, yeah, she was a fucking snitch. All right, let's not even say that again about my darling. I was relieved to hear Marco say that because hearing what Marcia did in Nicaragua and the conversation we had with Marty totally fucked with my head. It made me question if I really knew her. Michelle gave me some comfort, too, that Marcia was the person I remember her to be. My time with Marcia was not only selling drugs, that's for darn sure. That paid for the stuff that we wanted to do. That paid for the ability to help folks a lot. It wasn't the, it wasn't the book, that was just a chapter. It was a big chapter. It's taken, what, 40 years for me to be able to say, yes, I was there. (laughs) Wow, how liberating, thank you. The truth is, Marcia probably was in over her head. I keep wondering, was she aware of how out of control things were getting? Did she really think she could get away with interstate and international drug smuggling? How did Marcia think she could pull all of this off? Well, I have some idea of how Marcia thought about all of this. She thrived when she was pushing boundaries, and she was sure she could get away with it. It was a sort of magical thinking. I did the same thing. Yeah, until you ended up in jail. I Was Never There is a Wonder Media Network production. It's hosted by me, Jamie Zellermeyer, and my mom, Karen, and it's based on our lives. It's produced by Allie Wollner, Lindsay Crowdowell, Adesua Agbenile, and Liz Smith. It's edited by Jenny Kaplan and Liz Smith. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan, Jamie Zellermeyer, and Karen Zellermeyer. Production assistance by Alessandra Tejeda. Our music supervisor is Sarah Tembekjian. The theme music is Take Me Home, Country Roads by John Denver, performed by Brandy Carlisle. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love your help in getting the word out. Please rate and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to help others discover I Was Never There. <laughs>